everybody. It is Tuesday, October 24th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. So Moshe, I know that it is now Tuesday morning, but I did notice that on Friday there was no Mo News quiz, even though our team worked on it. What happened? So for those of you who are Mo News Premium members, uh, you know that we do a weekly news quiz over on the members' Instagram account. And yes, the team prepped it, had it all ready to go. And I have to say, Jill, I now fully appreciate the exhaustion that is parenthood. (laughs) So I was like, all right, I'll get to it. But then a feed happened, and there was some crying, and there was some exhaustion. And then I woke up on Saturday. I was like, oh, damn, I haven't posted the news quiz. So I literally posted a video being like, hey, guys, what's going on? What are you thinking about? Um, By the way, news quiz will come up. And then, again, absent-minded, you know, parenthood stuff came up. And so here we are on Tuesday. And uh, I neglected the Mo News Premium members, and I, uh, I feel very bad about it. But we will have an extra special news quiz, a weekly news quiz for you this week. But uh, yeah, Jill. I don't mean to blame my four-week-old daughter, but I, uh, you know, I got distracted. <laughs> so I was kind of just busting your chops a little bit because I saw your whole explanation uh, online. Yeah. But my favorite part of it was like, I don't mean to blame my daughter. I love my daughter. It's like we'll keep her. We'll, we'll still keep her. But next <laughs> oh, yeah. time, we're just going to set an alarm to do the quiz. We just need her to be on like really good <laughs> behavior on Friday afternoon, <laughs> though she started to have a bit of a witching hour in the evening at this stage of um, infancy. So that said, rest assured, if it's not me, someone else on the Modus team will post it for all your premium members. And if you're not a premium member, you should join over at mo.news slash premium. And one more quick thing about it. I say just post it now, even though it's a little bit late. Who cares? Oh, we could do that yeah. and see if people remember. Okay. So we will have it. Well, you know, like a midweek news quiz. Why not? I'll refresh it with some stuff from the weekend. Let's do that. And we'll go from there. By the way, Jill, I should mention I'm recording from our offices at WeWork, where uh, we can't wait for your big return. We recently moved in here, and we've been loving the space here, the ability to collaborate with other folks. Uh, we're using a WeWork space in Brooklyn, New York, but they're available across the country. And they have a special deal right now for Mo News listeners offering 20% off your first six months of WeWork All Access. If you're looking to rent a desk or rent an office for a number of folks uh, longer term, they have all of that with the code MoWorks20. That's MoWorks20. You can head over to we.co, we.co slash MoWorks20. The link is in the show notes. All right, let's get to some news here. Hamas releases two more Israeli hostages from Gaza. We'll tell you who they are. The IDF shows journalists raw video of the Hamas attack from October 7th as some groups are already denying it happened. Meanwhile, in Gaza, more than half of the population has fled their homes and former President Barack Obama weighs in on the attack and what should come next. Switching gears, an off-duty pilot tries to shut off the engines on an Alaska Airlines flight. Yeah, thankfully, the on-duty pilot stopped this guy. We'll tell you about it. Senator Bob Menendez pleading not guilty to foreign agent charges. Mary Lou Retton home from the hospital and in recovery mode. The UAW expands its auto strike once again. A huge merger in the oil world. And Bobby, the world's oldest dog, dies at the age of 31. Plus, Moshe is on this day in history. A long, long time ago, I can still remember. When the music used to make me smile. 
There it is. <laughs> we got a little Don McLean. We'll remember the Concord jet. And uh, we'll tell you about the first woman who went over the Niagara Falls in a barrel on this day in history. Okay, let's start in Israel, where the Hamas terrorist group released two more hostages on Monday. The two freed hostages, 85-year-old Yochaved Lifshitz and 79-year-old Narit Cooper, were taken out of Gaza at the Rafah crossing into Egypt, where they were put into ambulances. This is according to footage that was shown on Egyptian TV. The two women, along with their husbands, were snatched from their homes in the kibbutz of Nir Oz near the Gaza border during Hamas's October 7th rampage into southern Israel communities. Their husbands not released. It is notable that Yochaved and her husband Oded are peace activists. They would help Palestinians get medical care in Israel. Still, they were among those abducted more than two weeks ago as Hamas murdered more than 1,300 other Israelis. Hamas said it released them for humanitarian reasons. Days after freeing an American woman and her teenage daughter, Hamas and other militants in Gaza are believed to have taken more than 220 people, including an unconfirmed number of foreigners and dual nationalists. Israeli officials say they were not party to negotiations. The Saudi-based El Arabiya news outlet and the New York Times claimed that there would be an imminent release of 50 of the hostages who hold foreign passports. Now, according to a Wall Street Journal report, that release did not take place after Israel refused to allow fuel into Gaza with the transfer of humanitarian aid. Israel wants all of the hostages, all 220 or more, released before allowing in fuel. Israel says that they think that Hamas and Islamic Jihad are going to use the fuel for their purposes, for attacking Israel. Last week, the UN reported that Hamas stole a major fuel supply from a hospital. Public pressure is mounting, though, on the Israeli government to strike a deal with Hamas to free the hostages. U.S. and European governments are seeking to persuade Israel to hold off on its ground invasion of the Gaza Strip. This would give them more time to win the release of the hostages, according to U.S. and foreign officials. At the same time, several countries have been pressing Hamas which has threatened to execute abductees in response to Israeli airstrikes in Gaza to release more hostages. So fuel here, one of the major stumbling blocks in the talks with Hamas, Israeli officials say no fuel until you release the hostages. In a sign, though, of building pressure on the Israeli government, a group of hostages families met with the Israeli president, Isaac Herzog, on Sunday evening to press their demands. Dozens of supporters gathered outside his residence in West Jerusalem, holding the signs, bring them home. So you have the West here, as well as a domestic element within Israel, saying, please focus on our uh, missing Israelis, the ones being held captive, uh, before you do anything further inside Gaza. Meanwhile, in the Palestinian territory, a third small aid convoy from Egypt entered on Monday. Uh, that's where the population of about 2.3 million has been running out of food, water, and medicine. As the Israelis have sealed Gaza, 20 trucks entered Gaza on Monday. That takes the total to about 54 trucks that have entered since Saturday. Right now, the UN says that aid is helping a bit, but they need much more, including fuel, which they need to power the water desalination plant, which will ensure drinking water uh, allows bakeries, hospitals, and other entities to function within Gaza. The U.N. says that the distribution of aid will grind to a halt within days because they won't have fuel anymore for their trucks. Gaza hospitals 
flooded by a constant stream of the wounded are struggling to keep their generators running right now uh, and keep uh, incubators going, life-saving medical equipment, etc. The Israelis retort, well, you know, talk to your governing authority there, Hamas, which appears to have enough fuel to continue to shoot rockets into Israel. At least 1.4 million Palestinians in Gaza have fled their homes. Nearly 580,000 of the residents there are sheltering right now in UN-run schools and shelters in the Gaza Strip. Again, just for scale here, the entire Gaza Strip, just over 2 million people. So we're talking about the majority of the people no longer living in their homes in Gaza. And it comes as the death toll continues to escalate. More than 5,000 Palestinians, including 2,000 minors and 1,100 women, have been killed. That's according to the Hamas-run health ministry on Monday. That includes a disputed toll from an explosion in a hospital parking lot last week. Uh, We've been talking to you about that. The toll has climbed rapidly, according to Hamas, in recent days. Again, the numbers from Hamas here are not authenticated by any third party. Hamas also doesn't distinguish between Uh, members of the group, of the terror group, and civilians. But those are the numbers that we get, and that's what I've had to explain to people on Instagram. Meanwhile, in Israel, more than 1,400 people have been killed, mostly civilians, during that terror attack two weeks ago. At least 222 people captured and dragged back into Gaza, including foreigners. Israel continues its airstrikes. It says it struck 320 terror targets throughout Gaza over the last 24 hours the military insisting it does not target civilians and that Palestinian terrorists have fired more than 7,000 rockets into Israel since the start of the war. Right now, the Iron Dome in Israel is fending off about 95% of those rockets. More than 500 Hamas and Islamic Jihad rockets have fallen back on Gaza uh, due to misfires. About 400 plus have landed inside Israel despite Iron Dome. Now comes as Israel held a screening Monday for more than 200 journalists, which included raw and unedited audio and video taken from Hamas terrorists' body cameras and phones as they massacred communities on Israel's border with Gaza. Okay, so just another warning now. If you're listening to this with kids, we are going to describe what happened, and it's quite graphic. In addition to clips of Hamas attackers shooting people, the 43-minute compilation contained graphic images of children being murdered, bodies burned, civilians being mowed down, and other atrocities. The Israeli government's decision to broadcast the footage came as it is increasingly concerned that people are questioning the scale and depravity of the massacre. Social media users and journalists alike have expressed skepticism about widespread reports and testimonies of the attack's most harrowing details. The IDF has taken delegations of foreign journalists into some of the hardest-hit communities, with one spokesperson saying just days after the attack, walking through here is like Eisenhower walking through Holocaust camps, and seeing the destruction and carnage, the world needs to witness this firsthand. Moshe, I, I think you actually gave that quote here from Eisenhower on, on this podcast recently. But I think it speaks to, to where we are in terms of just anti-Semitism, in terms of mistrust, that there are groups that are seriously denying that this happened. Whatever you think about what's going on between the Israelis and the Palestinians and what Israel should do next and the response and the very, very real humanitarian crisis in Gaza, to not believe the atrocities of the massacre on October 7th, I don't have any words for that. That, that, that just, to me, that feels like nothing more than anti-Semitism. 
Well, you know, I think that it also comes as uh, you've seen a lot of misinformation online. And the ironic thing is here, the Hamas attackers were very proud of what they did. They took video of what they did. They were phoning their families. They were taking body cam video of what happened. And then when they saw even in the Arab world outrage saying, you know, you guys are like ISIS. They call it Daesh in Arabic. Uh, Hamas was like, oh. And so even, you know, you saw in an interview we posted on Instagram over the weekend, an anchor on the Saudi outlet Al Arabiya grilling the Hamas leader being like, what were you guys thinking, you know, doing this horrific stuff? And so you have seen this push for denialism of what took place two weeks ago, forcing the Israelis here to say, we need to brief journalists to remind them of what exactly took place, that this was real stuff. This is tragic, horrendous, horrific things. And yes, you know, to your point, you can hold out sympathy and you should have empathy and sympathy for the Israeli civilians who were massacred here, the Palestinian civilians who are dying um, as a result of this war. But there is no place for denialism of what took place. And the ironic thing here, Jill, you know, you're somebody who's covered the Holocaust well, is the Germans also took, you know, vociferous notes. You know, one of the reasons we know what happened in the Holocaust is that the Germans documented everything, which makes the denial of the Holocaust all the more ridiculous. Uh, and in this case, the same thing. You know, Hamas went out of their way to document what was going on, FaceTime, posting stuff on social media, horrific stuff. And yet, you know, just within days, weeks later, people are like, well, did that really happen? And so I think you have the Israelis here saying we have to remind, you know, the people writing the first draft of history, the journalists from all these countries and show them exactly what we've discovered. And we are doing a deep dive just on, on the challenges of covering this conflict, of covering a war that is in our newsletter this morning. So this all comes as the U.S. continues to back up Israel so far. Tony Blinken, uh, the secretary of state on several news shows over the weekend, asked whether it was time to push for a ceasefire, especially given the escalating toll in Gaza. Here was a bit of his answer on CBS News. Israel has to do everything it can to make sure this doesn't happen again. Um, freezing things in place where they are now would allow Hamas to remain where it is and to repeat what it's done sometime in the future. No country could accept that. It's not about responding. It's not about retaliating. It's about defending Israel from these ongoing attacks. As I said, the rockets continue to this day. And it's about taking the steps necessary uh, to try to make sure, to the best of Israel's ability, that this can't yeah. happen again. Now, as, a, as we said very clearly, the president's been very clear about this. How Israel does that matters. Um, making sure that, to the greatest extent possible, civilians are protected. Civilians are deliberately put in the crossfire by Hamas. Hamas undertook yeah. the slaughter. It knew Israel would have to respond. And yet, all of its people, its senior leaders, its weapons, its tunnels, yeah. all are co-located in residential buildings, they're uh, buried yep. underneath hospitals and schools. It knew that in Israel's necessary response, um, civilians would be caught in that crossfire. So you hear there uh, Blinken pushing back on a question on Face the Nation, uh, a question by Margaret Brennan, saying, you know, Hamas also shares blame here for civilian casualties inside Gaza. They knew what they were doing with this terror attack. They knew the reaction Israel would have. And so blood is on their hands. Uh, and he believes that an immediate ceasefire will just enable more terror attacks and believes the Israelis need to do more before the U.S. calls on any sort of ceasefire and end to the airstrikes. At the same time, you have former President Obama chiming in in a post on Monday saying that he supports Israel in its war against Hamas, but cautioned the Israeli government against any actions that he says could, quote, 
ultimately backfire. He noted the uh, high death toll of the humanitarian crisis inside Gaza, and he expressed concerns for the Israelis cutting off supplies to the civilians of Gaza, as well as some other aspects of their response. He writes, quote, the world is watching closely as events in the region unfold, and any Israeli military strategy that ignores the human costs could ultimately backfire. It could harden Palestinian attitudes for generations, erode global support for Israel, and undermine long-term efforts to achieve peace and stability in the region. So notable there from Obama, a former president, right now his former vice president, now President Biden, uh, has been pretty adamant in saying the Israelis need to do what the Israelis need to do here. And the Israelis would push back on Obama and say, like, you know, who's talking about peace and stability right now after a terror attack? We would never ask the same of you. At the same time, you know, there is a legitimate argument here that the Israelis need to be very strategic in their approach because ultimately these two peoples have to live alongside each other. That ain't ending anytime soon. So to the extent that they can focus on Hamas and avoid civilian casualties, uh, which they're already trying to do according to the U.S. government, that is something that you hear reinforced by the Americans, by the Europeans and, and other allies of Israel. One thing I really just want to quickly mention, Axios's Barack Ravid, he is a journalist. We've quoted him before. He's, he's very well sourced in Israel. He says that the Biden administration actually sent uh, some Marine three-star generals and several military officers to Israel to help advise the IDF. They're not involved in the military planning, but in some ways they're, they're kind of just trying to provide lessons learned from fighting ISIS in Mosul. As we've talked about, this is urban warfare. It is extremely difficult. So I just think pretty fascinating that you've got this type of coordination. Yeah, the U.S. and Israeli militaries and intelligence have always been in coordination, but this appears to be sort of a next level coordination here as the Israelis look to a ground invasion. Okay, switching gears, an off-duty pilot who was in a jump seat in the cockpit of an Alaska Airlines flight on Sunday was charged with more than 80 counts of attempted murder after he tried to basically stop the engines, prompting the plane to divert. Flight 2059, operated by Horizon Airlines, which is an Alaska Airlines regional subsidiary, it left Everett, Washington at around 5.23 p.m. Sunday. It was headed to San Francisco when it reported, quote, a credible security threat related to an off-duty Alaska Airlines pilot who was traveling in the flight deck jump seat. According to the airline, the jump seat occupant unsuccessfully attempted to disrupt the operation of the engines, adding that the captain and the first officer quickly responded. Engine power was not lost and the crew secured the aircraft without incident. A pilot told an air traffic controller that the man had tried to cut the plane's engines. This is according to an audio recording. The flight was diverted to Portland, Oregon. The pilot said, quote, we have got the guy that tried to shut the engines down out of the cockpit. And he doesn't sound like he is causing issues in the back right now. I think he is subdued. Mosh, this is not something you hear every day. I would think the last person I'd be worried about is a uh, off-duty pilot in a jump seat on a plane. And yet it appears here that that was the main issue. Thankfully, the on-duty pilots there were able to stop him. His name is Joseph Emerson. He is 44 years old. He was booked into jail on Monday morning on more than 80 charges of attempted murder, a felony, uh, more than 80 counts of reckless endangerment, a misdemeanor and endangering an aircraft, another felony there. There were four crew and 80 passengers on the flight, hence the 80 counts number there. 
the pilot in the air traffic control audio, you can hear him saying, uh, you know, we have him subdued. We just want law enforcement to meet us at the plane upon landing. So he's being held in custody here. It's unclear whether he has an attorney. We're waiting on more details on what Emerson was attempting here, why he was doing what he was doing. The Airline Pilots Association, that's a union that represents commercial airline pilots, commended the quick and professional response of the two pilots and the entire flight crew in securing the flight deck. The union said that airline pilots in North America work in one of the most highly vetted and scrutinized careers, and for a good reason. They add that they're evaluated throughout their careers through training, medical exams, and other programs, and are subjected to random checks by the FAA. Still, I imagine this will be leading to some more scrutiny by the FAA, the Airline Pilots Association, and the airlines themselves to ensure that everyone taking you up there into the skies has your interests in mind. Okay, we have plenty of news after the break, but for now, we want to talk about bowl and branch betting. We have talked about uh, on this podcast how we only really want to endorse things that we truly love. Well, bowl and branch betting and sheets is definitely one of those things. We've had them in my house for a few months now. We absolutely love them. Bowl and branch, good for all seasons, but particularly that summer of record heat. Well, it was definitely a bit easier because bowl and branch sheets are really soft and breathable. So that is Bowl and Branch, B-O-L-L and Branch Sheets. They are made with organic cotton and without some of the harsh chemicals that are used by other brands. Moshe, I never even realized how many companies use very harsh, potentially dangerous chemicals in their sheets. Yeah, it's something I learned as we learned more about Bowl and Branch. And these sheets really do get softer with every wash. So give you and your loved ones a better night's sleep this holiday season. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping when you use the promo code MONEWS at BowlandBranch.com. That is BowlandBranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, Branch.com. The promo code is MONEWS, M-O-N-E-W-S. It is a limited time offer and there are some exclusions. So see the site for details. Time now for the speed read from NBC News. Senator Bob Menendez, a Democrat from New Jersey, on Monday pleaded not guilty to a new charge alleging that he accepted bribes from the Egyptian government and conspired to act as a foreign agent while serving as a member of Congress. Wearing a pinstripe suit with a red tie, Menendez sat between his lawyers for the brief hearing. It only lasted about five minutes. Menendez said, we are innocent and we are going to prove it. In a statement following his arraignment, he continued to deny any wrongdoing, saying anyone who knows my record knows that this latest charge is as outrageous as it is absurd. His co-defendants include his wife, Nadine Menendez, and a businessman, Wael Hanna. They were also included in the new charges, and they pleaded not guilty last week. You might remember these details uh, from late last month. Uh, Menendez, according to the indictment, provided sensitive U.S. government information and took other steps that secretly aided the government of Egypt. Uh, He again denies wrongdoing. Federal prosecutors alleging the indictment that the senator's wife and Hana worked to introduce Egyptian intelligence and military officers to Menendez for the purpose of establishing and solidifying a corrupt agreement. The new charge alleges that from 2018 to 2022, Hana Menendez and his wife conspired, confederated, and agreed with each other to have a public official, Menendez in this case, act as an agent for the government of Egypt. 
In exchange, Menendez and his wife took in money as well as gold bars. Uh, you might remember that detail. Uh, they pled not guilty last month to other corruption charges related to that. At the same time, you now have these extra charges. Menendez did step down as the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee shortly after he was indicted last month. During his tenure as the chair of the Senate panel, he helped oversee billions of dollars going to Egypt. So a lot of allegations here that run deep. A lot of Democrats have been calling on him to resign. Dozens of Democratic colleagues. He refuses right now, despite this indictment, despite the bribery charges and these beyond over the top allegations. Yeah, regarding those those gold bars, authorities actually say that Menendez <laughs> at one point Googled how much is one kilo of gold worth? Just a reminder that your history online is there forever. Be careful what you Google. Yes, yes. Good reminder, especially if you're engaged in taking cash and gold bars from a foreign government. From People, former Olympic gymnast Mary Lou Retton is home from the hospital. And an update on her mom's condition posted on Instagram Monday, Retton's daughter, McKenna Kelly, said that Retton has been released from a Texas hospital following a multi-week bout with a rare form of pneumonia. She wrote, mom is home and in recovery mode. We still have a long road of recovery ahead of us. But baby steps. We are overwhelmed with the love and support from everyone. Grateful does not scrape the surface of the posture of our hearts. Yeah, nearly two weeks ago, she first shared the news that her 55-year-old mother was hospitalized fighting for her life and did not have health insurance. Since then, more than $500,000 has been raised to help Mary Lou Retton. We reported recently on a scary setback. It's been a very up and down journey. Over the past couple of weeks, the sisters have spoken out about the outpouring of support for Retton. They say they are overwhelmed. We did not realize there's so many people out there who love her just as much as we do. From CNN, Chevron announcing Monday that it has agreed to buy rival Hess in yet another oil industry consolidation deal. Cash-rich oil giants are taking advantage of high prices and surging profits to snap up assets and boost returns for shareholders, even as pressure builds for them to invest in more renewable energy. This deal is worth about $53 billion plus debt. It would give Chevron even greater access to U.S. shale production in Texas, a part of the industry where Chevron has been a leader for years. Hess also has large oil assets in Guyana in South America, where Chevron said uh, it would help grow its production over the next decade. Critics have slammed oil companies, though, for spending tens of billions of dollars on stock buybacks instead of easing the pain for consumers at the pump or investing more heavily in energy transition. Already cash-rich oil companies have scored record profits after Russia's invasion of Ukraine, pinched oil supplies, and sent prices higher. Yeah, it's been a good couple of years to be in the oil industry. Get a load of this number. Exxon last year made a record profit, and we'll give you a sense of this. They made about $2,000 of profit per second over the year 2022. Uh, that's how much money they brought in. So with all this profit, with all this cash, uh, they're going on a buying spree. Two weeks ago, Exxon announced it would buy the shale company Pioneer for $60 billion. And now you have Chevron buying Hess. It's not clear whether Exxon or Chevron will face any antitrust hurdles to completing their deals. The Biden administration has been far more active in challenging corporate power than other recent administrations. One advocacy group that is pushing back here, the Open Markets Institute, says that Chevron's proposed Hess purchase will raise gas prices and urge regulators to block the deal for American consumers. 
Uh, still unsaid here, what happens to the Hess brand, Jill? Many people are asking about those Hess Christmas trucks that many people get and what Chevron does with them. <laughs> Obviously, a much smaller thing compared to all the various <laughs> uh, questions we're going to be asking about this major oil merger. I was going to say only the important stuff, but you know what? People really do love those Hess trucks. I would imagine that they keep them, that they're not going to go away. I think if if they're making $1,000 of profit per second, they should be able to afford to keep them, don't you think? From NPR, checking in on the ongoing auto worker strike, UAW President Sean Fain was adamant last week that the big three automakers can still offer more despite already putting record contracts on the table. On Monday morning, he underscored that message, calling on 6,800 auto workers at Stellantis's Sterling Heights assembly plant outside of Detroit to walk out. That plant is Stellantis's biggest, and it makes their best-selling Ram trucks. The expansion now brings the total number of auto workers on strike to over 40,000, and thousands more have been laid off in what auto companies call a ripple effect of the strike. The union says it took the step because Stellantis lags behind both Ford and General Motors in addressing the demands of their UAW workforce. Yeah, this goes on and on and on. UAW trying to ratchet things up here. All three automakers, GM, Ford, and Stellantis, which makes Dodge and Chrysler, as you mentioned, uh, have proposed wage hikes of 23% over the life of the contract, a significant increase from their initial proposals. Stellantis has said that it would increase 401k retirement contributions to nearly 10%, among other improvements. Stellantis has also agreed to cut the number of years it takes each employee to reach the top wage from 8 to four years. Ford now says they'll let you get to the top wage in three years. So that's why UAW is targeting Stellantis here. By laying out the proposal side by side, UAW is making clear that they expect all three of the big three to get on the same page. But at the same time, uh, the companies are warning the UAW that the longer they make the strike go on, they are sacrificing the domestic share of sales to non-union competitors abroad. So they're saying, listen, you know, you are draining these companies. You're actually working at cross purposes of what you're looking for. So take the deal you have right now before it causes long-term issues for the brands. From the Associated Press, federal authorities have released more details and unsealed charges in the theft of more than 2 million dimes earlier this year from a tractor trailer that had (laughs) picked up the coins from the U.S. Mint in Philadelphia. The big dime (laughs) theft of 2023. The truck driver was bound from Miami when he pulled into a parking lot to sleep on April 13th. And then during the night, thieves made off with a portion of its cargo of $750,000 in dimes. That is a shipment that weighs about six tons, according to authorities. Thousands of coins were also left scattered all over the parking lot in Northeast Philadelphia. The Philadelphia Inquirer reports that prosecutors contend that the theft, which they now say totaled $234,000 in stolen dimes, was part of a spree of robberies from tractor trailers passing through the region that also netted the thieves frozen crab legs, shrimp, meat, beer, and liquor. What in the what is happening? They were not very discerning. (laughs) They're like, we're just going to take what we get. We're going to open these trucks up. Okay, frozen crab legs, cool. Beer, great. Liquor, great. What does this truck have? Dimes. Lots and lots of dimes. So as you said, the cargo was $750,000 in dimes. They made off with about $235,000. So about a third of the dimes. Jill, detectives have surveillance video showing six men wearing hoodies armed with bolt cutters in the middle of the night, breaking into the truck and then loading all these dimes 
into smaller bags. The indictment unsealed last week alleges that after the theft, thousands of dimes were converted into cash at coin machines across Maryland or through deposits at at least four Philly banks. Just some guy rolling in being like, listen, I have a hundred grand in dimes. Can I get some, (laughs) can I get some Benjamins for that? I want video of them opening up a, a truck and then finding frozen crab legs and just deciding, like, what are we doing here? Do we want these? Are, are we leaving them or are we taking them? Like, can we sell these on Amazon? <laughs> can we sell them on eBay? I guess dimes better than frozen crab legs. But, you know, listen, certain crooks not discerning, Jill. They'll take what they can get and they'll find someone to sell them to. From CBS News, Bobby, the world's oldest dog, died on Saturday He was 31 years old. His death was announced by Guinness World Records, which had certified Bobby as the world's oldest dog on February 2nd. He lived in a Portuguese village. More than 100 people from around the world attended a 31st birthday celebration for him back in May. Bobby was a purebred. Uh, He was a Raffiero du Alentejo. It's a breed known for protecting livestock. This is according to the American Kennel Club. These dogs have an average life expectancy of about 12 to 14 years. His mother, Gira, lived to be about 18. Bobby's owner previously attributed his longevity to the calm, peaceful environment that he lived in. He said Bobby's diet of human food also contributed. Bobby was never tied up, chained, or leashed. He was allowed to roam around the home. The news of his death was shared by Dr. Karen Becker, a vet who had met Bobby several times and called him a sweet boy. Amazing story, a 31-year-old dog. Becker, the veterinarian, posted on Facebook and wrote, despite outliving every dog in history, his 11,478 days on Earth would never be enough for those who loved him. The family describes him to Guinness as very calm and sociable, adding that he loved being petted and enjoyed playing with his four cat siblings. Bobby also liked walking around the family's farm, relaxing by the fireplace on cold days. The previous record holder was an Australian cattle dog named what else? Bluey. That dog lived to be just over 29 years old, according to Guinness. Bobby hit 31 years old. Jill, I feel like I want to go live in a small Portuguese village, unchained, untied, and eating a great diet of human food. I mean, if that's not living, I don't know what is. All right, now time for On This Day in History. On this day in 1901, a 63-year-old school teacher named Annie Taylor became the first person to successfully take the plunge over Niagara Falls in a barrel. So earlier that summer of 1901, she read an article about the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo and learned about the popularity of these two enormous waterfalls, Niagara Falls, in New York and Canada. Strapped for cash, looking for fame, she came up with a stunt. She would go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. So she actually did this, survives. She gets some speaking gigs, never really made much money off of it, but she would inspire a whole bunch of copycat daredevils. Here's the record. Between 1901 and 2000, 15 people went over Niagara Falls. 10 of them survived. Five of them died. None of them got rich off of it. I should note, it is illegal to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel chill, in case anyone listening to us is considering it. Not it. On this day in 1940, the 40-hour work week went into effect under the U.S. Fair Labor and Standards Act. Back in 1926, 14 years previous, Ford Motor Company had adopted the five-day, 40-hour work week before then. Americans were working seven days a week, working 80 hours a week. They were trying to standardize things. Congress in 1938 would then create a 44-hour work week, and then two years later, it was brought down to 40 hours. 
where things currently stand that we've talked a lot on this podcast about the four-day work week becoming the, the new thing. If you want to stay at 40 hours, four days at 10 hours is ideal because then you still have the three-day weekend, 10 hours a day. It's not crazy. <laughs> I think that's I, I think that's perfect. We're still debating that here <laughs> at Mo News, taking this down to four longer podcasts <laughs> as opposed to five shorter podcasts. <laughs> On this day in 1945, the charter of the UN was entered into force. It was set to be the world's premier international organization established in the end of World War II to maintain world peace, friendly relations among the nations. That hasn't quite worked out. And the organization has become increasingly irrelevant through the years. Jill, we did a whole history of the UN over on the Mo News Premium Instagram account. And you can join over at mo.news slash premium and join the Insta account and see all of our various deep dives, including what happened to the UN. On this day in 2003, the supersonic passenger jet ended service as British Airways flew its last ever Concorde flight. Air France had ceased similar operations earlier. The Concorde, you might remember it. It was a very sleek plane that would make the trip from New York to London in just over three hours, traveling at more than 1,300 miles per hour, more than double what jets typically travel. The Concorde became a symbol of speed and luxury, but there was a tragic crash uh, in 2000, an Air France crash of a Concorde jet. All Concorde flights were grounded. It was super expensive to run, so they effectively ended it. Though they are looking to bring commercial jets at that speed back in the coming years. All right, finally, a bit of pop culture news as we teased at the top on this day 52 years ago. We were singing Don McLean released his second studio album, American Pie. Jill, something I found out about Alex um, a couple years into dating, actually, is she has memorized the, I think, the first four or five verses of American Pie. It's uh, pretty remarkable. That Alex, uh, always surprising us <laughs> with what she knows. Actually, I used to sing my Alex American Pie, but I would cheat because I would have the Alexa kind of, you know how they they show mm. the, the lyrics? Yeah. I would basically be doing like a, a karaoke version of it. You're doing karaoke for your Alex. Yes. I've never been great with song lyrics. I have a weird memory thing where I can always remember like years and factoids about news events and, and history song lyrics just that part of my brain just doesn't doesn't click we can't be good at everything Mosh. oh but we can endeavor <laughs> to do so jill um on this day in 1995 i used to listen to this on repeat as i got my driver's license hooting the blowfish released their song time another classic from yesteryear 23 years ago today outcast released miss jackson on this day in 2000. I'm sorry, Miss Jackson. Ooh, I am for real. Never meant to make your Jill Taylor Swift released her debut studio album on this day. Just 16 years old on this day in 2006. Her debut album included uh, Tim McGraw and Teardrops on My Guitar. He's a reason for the teardrops on my guitar. The only thing that keeps and that album, Mosh, was just called Taylor Swift. We have the picture in the newsletter today. I cannot believe how young she was. I mean, obviously she was young, but I just can't believe how young she looks. It's crazy. Just a child, Jill, just a child. Um, anyway, big day for music on this day, October 24th. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. See you guys tomorrow, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.